0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of the System Science and Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Glasgow and director of the Cipher Consortium. Joining us via Zoom today is Professor Birgit Kopoinski, who works at the University of Bergen, Norway. Birgit describes herself as a systems thinker and modeler with a passion for learning about food systems, climate change, resilience and other socio-ecological systems. Birgit, it's wonderful to have you here today. Your website presents us readers with some key challenges. What does it take to feed a growing and more demanding global population while staying within planetary and social boundaries? Can I start by asking you how you ended up in this area of research and what excites you about system science? Well, hello Petra and thank
1: you very much for having me. It's uh it's lovely to be part of this wonderful initiative you're starting with a really tricky question i have to say uh and maybe as a systems person i'll react first to the uh to the part of the question that implies that this is the end point you ask me how i ended up here and i hope that this is an ongoing process that's uh that's not finished yet but uh how did I become a systems thinker? I think I always was a systems thinker, and the reason why I eventually ended up doing system dynamics was very simply because I wasn't good at anything else. I um, I have a master's in geography, and geography is, uh, is very inherently an interdisciplinary uh, field. So I was uh, I was looking into natural resource management and uh, and sustainability questions. I've always hit a limit when I was going around in my unbounded enthusiasm, telling everybody what they needed to do to become more sustainable, and I was met with the reaction, "Well, that's economically not feasible." So I decided I was going to study applied economics, and I um I went on to uh, to do a PhD in agricultural economics. Which of course took me to the other side. It's a, it's a field that's very exciting, that uh, that's very problem driven and uh, and solution driven. And while I was very excited about the very specific questions that are asked, you know, questions that affect natural resource use, that affect human decision making, and that uh, look at the interactions between the two, I really was terrible at the methods that they use, that they normally use. I was horrible at econometrics. I was horrible at optimization. And it took uh, a crisis or two for my supervisor to, uh, to essentially give up and say, why don't you try some systems stuff? And that's how it started. I had experienced systems science work before in an internship on uh, Local Agenda 21 processes. I was very excited, started reading and got pushed into uh, really by some acquaintance who said, why don't you read John Strowman's Business Dynamics? This is, you know, it's the Bible for system dynamics and it's what you need to do. So that's what I did. I started doing it. I uh, I was really bad at it, but I started going to the system dynamics conferences and found my home there. I found this network of people who share a passion for building simulation models to understand how problems evolve in complex dynamic systems and how we can use modeling for policy analysis and uh, And design so i would say the reason why i ended up where i am is really twofold one is that i have an inherent interest in interdisciplinary work i'm much more interested in the big picture and in interrelationships across disciplines and policy sectors than going deep and uh the other thing is that while i love doing uh system dynamics and systems thinking more generically I think it's important to stick with one theme because it's dangerous. You know, These systems uh, approaches are dangerous because they are inherently generic. The structures that we find in, uh, in systems, they, uh, they reoccur across domains. But it's, to me, it's dangerous to jump from one application domain to the other. You need to be taken seriously in the field. You need to be understood and credible. So that's why I stuck to all kinds of questions related to food production, environmental impact, natural resource use, people,
0: and their uh, welfare fascinating you you also pose other questions. you say sort of how do we get there um you, you know when when you when you have these grand challenges, and you you said why you've stuck with one area um because as you know i agree it's it's important to to have some expertise in the applied area as well as in, in the methods. So how do we get there is what you ask and how do we minimise trade-offs and maximise synergies and how do we make sure that all voices are heard and represented? So important, in especially in the areas that you work in and in public health, which is, which is my area, of course. Do you want to say a little bit more about how system science can help us with these questions? Sure, uh, very happy
1: to. Um, I would say, you know, the simple answer to this question is that systems approaches, they force us to constantly ask the question, and what happens then? So, you know, more specifically, what what we try to do when we understand the processes that generated problematic behavior, and when we try to identify leverage points is that we always search not just for the direct, but also for the indirect consequences of our actions, decisions, or of interventions. Uh, We always search for the intended, but also the unintended consequences of these actions, decisions, and interventions. So we never stop at the next point. We always ask the question, and what happens then? And this first allows us to to get deeper insight into all kinds of consequences of actions uh, or interventions, but it also allows us to identify, you know, to me, the core of uh, systems thinking and system dynamics, the feedback loops. So we search for the reinforcing feedback loops and the tipping points that there are beyond which a reinforcing loop stops acting as a vicious cycle, as a trap. It can be a poverty trap, it can be a natural resource degradation trap in my application domains and all kinds of other traps in other domains. So we look for these reinforcing feedback loops that keep, that trap the system in an undesirable behavior mode. But we also look for ways that we can tip the, these same processes into changing direction and becoming virtuous cycles that reinforce uh the impact of policies but we also look for policy resistance loops so we look for for mechanisms that resist stubbornly the uh our desired consequences to happen because when you know in in the environmental domain if we see beneficial impact on the environment well you know then the pressure starts reducing and uh And we change, uh, we, we diminish our actions that would continue to improve the environmental situation. That's a policy resistance mechanism. So I think it's, you know, system sciences really can be super helpful by asking these questions about what happens then by helping us uncover these very, these very powerful feedback mechanisms and the uh, third thing that I've be- become continuously more passionate about is that system sciences are also lend themselves extremely well, and probably better than other uh, methodologies to participatory processes. And I think this is so extremely important uh, when addressing some of these grand challenges. Models are great, but you know, to me, they're just a part of a bigger knowledge brokerage process and a process of understanding each other's point of view and understanding the big picture. So it's really also about hearing the voices of the people who are represented as a variable in the model, because without hearing these voices, we can come up with the perfect policies, but they will never be implemented.
0: I'm interested in this. So You've worked in both Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. and What has been your experience of such participatory work in what must be wildly different settings? <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful question.
1: You know, I was, uh, I was intimidated when I first started working in, you know, maybe more unusual contexts. With uh, with target audiences with uh, with far- with uh, smallholder farmers who are not very fluent uh, when it comes to reading and writing, I was terrified. But it turns out, and uh, I'm not the first person to say that uh, that there's ample literature that uh, that backs this up. People are inherently systems thinkers during much of the formal educational education process. And other things that happen in life, we essentially unteach people how to think in systems. So we unteach people to see the big big picture and the and the interconnections among things, because we teach people to become experts who know extremely much about almost nothing. This is a side note, but uh, I'm a little frustrated with academia and excellence, which is knowing a lot about essentially nothing. When what we have to do to solve grand challenges is to talk to other experts and to, and to find a conversation with other experts. But to go back to your question, I was terrified in working with a diverse set of, um, of stakeholders, but it turned out to be fairly intuitive. Systems thinking is not so difficult at the end of the day. We talk about things that we would call variables and how they're related to each other. We can, of course, make this sound very scientific and very mathematical, but it doesn't have to be. Words and pictures are very powerful, and they allow us to facilitate a discussion at a different level, because we see what we're talking about, we, we give things a name, we show what we're, we put these words on a whiteboard or on whatever, uh, whatever platform we're using, and so we, everybody knows what we're talking about, and everybody can contribute. So at the end of the day, I would say, yes, they're vastly different target audiences, but not so different after all.
0: How do you see the relationship then between sort of the more qualitative system thinking research you've done and uh, computational modeling? And what do you think are the contributions these uh, sort of different approaches? make or are they even different approaches?
1: Yeah, to start with your uh, last question, yes, I would absolutely say they are different approaches, but they're very complementary in my view. And to me, it's much more about the dance between qualitative and quantitative. I would even boldly claim that you you can't do a purely qualitative study without some quantitative data. And the other way around, there is no way you can build a quantitative simulation model without doing qualitative research. So to me, they're not mutually exclusive, qualitative and quantitative modeling. It's more of a dance, and it very much depends on the problem. It very much depends on the uh, on the purpose of, uh, of your project. And it might also depend on the stage of the project. And here, I'm very fascinated by... Uh, by a framework that Peter Hoffman describes in his uh, community-based system dynamics book, where he differentiates between essentially four uh, types of problems uh, that are very different uh, when it comes to the choice of modeling activities and also uh, modeling outcomes afterwards. You know, if if the purpose of a project is to negotiate a shared understanding of a system, then you don't want to throw a simulation model at people uh, from the outset. Then you really want to elicit different uh, different perspectives and try to see how they how they form a bigger picture, uh, where they where they fit, but also where there is some friction. And you want to spend time on discussing the, these frictions and uh, on understanding what this bigger picture means for. Knowledge for knowledge gaps or for uh, for future projects. On the other hand, when you have a well-defined problem, then you know you can knock yourself out with uh, building a computer simulation model and uh, and use it to test either different scenarios, test the role of uncertainty, test the impact of policies, or a combination thereof. But again, also then it's. It's always a dance between qualitative and quantitative because the qualitative data, the qualitative research provides the the rich narratives and the deep understanding uh, that helps us understand how decision-making processes are represented in models, but also what we need to do during uh, implementation. And the quantitative, the, the simulation itself provides some gives us an opportunity to do uh, some systematic hypothesis testing. But really, to me, they go hand in hand.
0: Of all the models you and your team have built or all the participatory um, engagements you've had, do you have a favorite one? Maybe one that you enjoyed uh, working on or a model that you enjoyed building or one that maybe was able to show something helpful or unexpected? Well Petra I think I need to disappoint you
1: here. I don't think I have a favorite model or a favorite piece of work. But that's most likely because to me, you know, a modeling project is never just about the model or maybe not about the model at all because really the process is so important. And when the process is done well, you know, when we when we iterate often with the stakeholders and or the client, when we iterate often in terms of modeling activities and continuously go back to problem description, to hypothesis formulation, to data collection, to uh, hypothesis testing, then at the end of the process, it's really hard to say, oh, this was surprising. Because the insights and the understanding have been developed over time throughout the modeling process. If you ask me about favorite bits in modeling projects, then there are several things You know, on the, on the process side. I, I probably live for the moments in modeling workshops and participatory modeling workshops when there is this aha feeling. So in Africa, we had this one workshop where uh, we had a moment where the um the husband was, oh, now I understand that I need to be more responsible with the money because otherwise my wife cannot do her job properly. And the wife was, yeah, but I also understand now that I can't make a lot of friends by giving away the soap and the uh, and the cooking oil that we that we bought. Because otherwise, you know, we won't make it to the end of the, of the growing season and to when we can harvest and sell food again. So, you know, these are hard moments. They might, they might seem small from the outside or trivial, but that's where the magic happens. And also, you know, when stakeholders report that because they were involved in this modeling process, they now do things differently or they kicked off a whole new process. So these to me are the nuggets that I'm constantly looking for. But maybe probably every project has something that I cherish. So, you know, in this uh, Sambia project, it was that men and women started seeing themselves in the bigger picture, that but also uh, farmers as a, as a group understood the role of the government and the need for self-organization. There was a project on circular economy where where we saw that with the current incentive system in the construction industry, there there's no way that we'll ever move much closer to a circular system. And so there, there are a gazillion, there are a gazillion um, examples. We had a project in uh, in Cambodia where we saw that participatory modeling actually really does facilitate behavior change. Uh, we even had some unusually nice uh, pre and post tests, but the behavior change that resulted from from these processes was. Well, we, you had to differentiate between action areas. So there was behavior change in action areas where uh, farmers and fishermen felt that they had agency. There they started to do things differently, but they also withdrew from some of the more collective action in, uh, initiatives imposed by the government because they felt they had no in, uh, agency. You know, sometimes it's also a double-edged sword. And then there are these projects where Uh, where we saw that yes change is possible but you know the the effort in some of the some of the areas that stakeholders feel most comfortable with so in agriculture that's often breeding um, is so big that it's not really realistic or it's so small that you really should focus much more on other things so in there was a project in Africa where the role of uh, animal breeding really was extremely limited when compared to uh, fodder availability, father for animals. And so on. There are projects where, where we saw rebound effects uh, happening that stubbornly resisted uh, water scarcity uh, policies. Uh, or there was a project in Switzerland where we saw the inconsistency of uh, nutrition recommendations when it comes to health and sustainability impacts and so on it's just every project is fascinating i i hope i will never have a, a favorite one
0: that's fabulous um i mean all, all of them do sound uh, truly fascinating so um i'm i'm not surprised that you can't put your finger <laughs> on on one single single piece of a model that you uh, particularly enjoyed um My final question to you is sort of back back to the broad picture, so how can we as academics and systems thinkers and modelers help decision makers, especially in policy or governments, uh, deal with the uncertainties in their complex systems, what would you say. Oh. I would say
1: several things so. And I I don't know which order I should go. But to me, you know, the first very important point is, and that probably doesn't answer your question of how we can help decision makers. But to me, one important point is complex systems are and remain complex. There is no silver bullet solution to complex problems. And no matter how much research we'll do, we will never find the silver bullet solution. I'm pretty, um, pretty uh, convinced about that. At least in the in the complex systems that I work with. So no matter how much I get pushed by decision makers or policymakers to tell them what to do, I can't because there is not the the one thing that will solve all the all the multifaceted problems that there are. So I think it's important just to stay true to the complexity and say, well, complex systems don't have simple solutions. That's certainly not what they want to hear. But I think we have a responsibility to to talk about that. Also, complex systems are adaptive. So we can use modeling to understand the sequencing and also the calibration of different interventions. But complex systems are adaptive. They will change over time. So, even if we come up with a, an effective policy mix, we will have to continuously adjust it and we will fail. So, you know, I think it's also important to emphasize that in complex systems, we need to do as best as we can, but we need to fail forward. It's it's not possible to find the one silver bullet solution, and it's not possible to find the silver bullet solution mix. We need to continuously experiment, and that also means that we'll fail. But we can the best we can do is fail forward, learn, and do better. Finally, you know, models are models are fantastic, but models are tools to test hypotheses. They are not crystal balls. And to me, doing model-based work is always a double-edged sword because really a model is a boundary object. It facilitates discussion and it facilitates experimentation, but it doesn't tell me how the world will look like. And I've heard this too often. Oh, the model said that we needed to do this, that, and the other. Models don't say anything. Models test the outcome of the hypotheses that we formulate. but then, at least in system dynamics, the, mo- the kinds of models that um, I'm involved with, we look at two long time horizons to strive for prediction. It's To me, a model is not a tool for prediction. It's a tool to test hypotheses. So, you know, they're really not crystal balls. And I don't know whether that belongs here, but as I'm more and more uh, passionate about stakeholder engagement, And the role of participation, of true participation, I think it's also really important to not underestimate the time it takes for building trust. In some of the participatory projects that we've done, we spent an almost ridiculous amount of time organizing the stakeholders and building some trust among stakeholders before we even got started with the modeling work. And if it takes so long to build trust for some researchy thing, it probably takes way longer to build trust for actual implementation. And that is, I'd say, really important not to
0: underestimate. Thank you so much, Birgit. That was fascinating. Fascinating insights from one of the key players in system dynamics research. If you'd like to read more about Birgit's work, You can find her profile on the University of Bergen website. And if you'd like to find out more about cipher or the system science work that uh, I do, then you can go on my website um, or subscribe to future episodes of this podcast. Thank you for listening to our sixth episode. And I hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye.